glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are starting a new mini-series today um, called A Theology of Sacred Things. And uh, we're going to start in 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to start in 1 Peter 1 is where we're going to be. Here, here's what we're going to do. Um, hear what I'm about to say as an excuse for why I'm delaying us starting the book of Hebrews, okay? If we're going to be honest and transparent. Um, we got this little window of three weeks. We just finished our series, Us. We got this little window of three weeks because in three Sundays, we're going to be doing our Hopeful Mental Health Sunday. We do it the weekend before Thanksgiving every year. Um, the week after that, one of the founding missionaries for Jews for Jesus is going to be here, and he's going to talk through Jesus and um, the Jewish festivals, how you see the Jewish festivals building this ark and the story of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. And then... And then it's everybody's favorite season. It's Christmas season! Woo! Yeah! It is, it is a beacon of hope in a dark and dreary winter of Oregon um, is Christmas. And so, um, and then we're going to get to the book of Hebrews in January. So we're going to spend three weeks, we're going to talk about this, uh, uh, a theology of sacred things. And what we're going to look at the next two weeks um, are the sacraments, the Protestant sacraments. Now, I don't know what your tradition or history um, or church exposure looks like, but sacraments may be a phrase or word you're really familiar with. Or it may be something you have no clue about. Um, you may have grown up like my mom's family did. You may have grown up in the Catholic Church. You may have grown up with a, a whole list of sacraments. And there may be a lot of emotional baggage around those ideas. Um, part of the Reformation, part of the Protestant movement, part of what made us who we are, was uh, uh, affirming that there are two sacraments. Um, there is baptism and communion and a sacrament. We're going to get this into weeks to come. Trust me, it, it's going to be more entertaining than this. But, well, um, uh, but a sacrament is, is, is a place, is an institution by God of divine grace. It's, it's a practice that we get to participate in that God, in some unexplainable, unique way, God has instituted this thing and in some way he shows up differently in that space, in that moment, than in anything else. And so this week we're going to talk about what does it even mean for something to be sacred? Uh, that's where the word sacraments comes from, is it's sacred things. Sacraments and sacred, they have the same root word. What does it mean for something to be sacred? Oh, what does it mean for something to be holy? Right? Um, you may not know this. In Jewish literature, in, in the Hebrew language, sacred and holy are the same thing. Any single time that you see sacred or holy, it's the exact same word. In fact, it's almost always translated holy. Occasionally, it's translated as sacred. So what does it mean for something to be sacred or holy? And here's why it should really matter. Because um, you got First Peter? This is what Peter says. He says, uh, he says this to the, the church that's scattered all over. He, he says this, verse 16, verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? 
It should matter to us to know what it means um, because Peter tells us right there that it's something we have to be. And if we don't know what it is, how do we even know if we can be what we don't know what we're supposed to be, supposed to how is it supposed to be, right? I promise you that was good English. You shall be holy for I am holy the word holy um, is, is a complex word. There's a lot going on and throughout history, throughout languages, there's times where it's had different types of nuances. Maybe one of the best definitions though, the working definition we're gonna go with um, as a church is that something that is holy is something that is utterly unique. Utterly unique. Different than everything else. Completely and totally unlike anything else in the world. But see, the baggage that I bring myself when I come to this passage of 1 Peter 1.16, and it may be on your mind too, is when I see something like it says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He, here, here's, here's, here's a word I could put in that place. You ready for this? For you shall be moral. Anybody else? You shall be Moral, you shall be righteous, you shall be morally upright. And, and as I've tried to follow Jesus as best I can, it, it's created a thing in me, and maybe it's created this thing in you, in this wrestling of believing that the primary objective that Peter's trying to call us to, that Jesus is trying to call us to, is to be moral people. And then on top of that, we've, we've developed this, uh, this idea, right? Um, we're going to look at it. Actually, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to the book of Numbers. Um, numbers, I know you were just doing your quiet time this morning in Numbers. Um, but Numbers 19. See, we think Peter is telling us to be moral just as God is morally upright. And, and then we see passages like Numbers 19, verse 22, if you're following along, it says this, furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Now, I know that that seems like a really riveting part of of, of, of teaching, but here's what I want you to see. Um, at least myself, and I think many of us, have developed an idea of what it means to be holy is to be moral, and the greatest risk to our holiness is that someone else might contaminate us. That, that, that if, we, if we get too close, right? If we get too close to someone else who is morally um, messed up, that we might catch whatever they have, that we might catch the sinnies, right? Anybody been afraid before about being too closely associated with someone? What'll happen if I go to that house, hang out with those people? What will people think? What will they think that I say about the way that they live their life? If I walk with them, if I love them, what if I'm around those people? Will I catch the sinnies that they have? 
And it's developed this culture in Christianity where we have become a place of, of moral life behavior management. In fact, um, as study, it was an old study, it was done in 2003, it was done on my generation, uh, millennials, if you're part of millennial, just in case you're curious, if you don't keep track on generations, millennials are now the people with mortgages and kids in junior high. They're, they're not teenagers anymore, um, they're us, right? That group is Gen Z, they're a whole different group, they're messed up, they're wrong, anyways. <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, they did a mass study of millennials, and, and here's what they found. The number one religion of millennials was not Christianity. It was not atheism. It was not some new age religion. They, the number one religion of, Christ, uh, of millennials, they defined it this way. It was moralistic, therapeutic deism. Deism, the idea that there's a God out there somewhere, but he doesn't really have any involvement with us. Therapeutic, as in it was something that kind of helped me navigate the hardships of life. And moralistic, as in the primary objective of my life is to be a moral person. And whether explicitly or implicitly, when we look at verses like we do in 1 Peter, and then we see things like we see in Numbers, we have developed this idea that what it means to be a Christian is to be a morally upright person who abstains from contaminating yourself with other things or other people that might touch you and make you unholy. It's a really easy argument to see. I mean, in fact, if you look throughout the law, it says it over and over again. That's why we looked at Numbers 19. It just says that. Numbers 19. Anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean. Maybe it's not about morals. Maybe it's just about the arc of things going on in the world. A, a lot of us have this idea somehow despite everything that this book says, we've accepted this idea that darkness conquers light. That the unclean contaminates the clean. I mean, it's what happens when you're cleaning a chicken, right? If you're there working on a chicken, maybe turkey. Well, a couple weeks away is turkey day, right? We're going to get ready with turkeys, right? And, and you're not supposed to clean chickens or turkeys. You know this. You're not supposed to clean them in your sink. You're not supposed to rinse them off, right? You know why? Because all the E. coli that's going to kill every single one of us. How many people do you know have died from E. coli? I'm, I think it's just conspiracy. Anyways, <laughs> it splatters everywhere. And what does it do when it splatters everywhere? It contaminates everything it touches, and somehow we've developed this idea in our Christian faith that there is this darkness, this dark power, this evil that's winning, that has the power to contaminate clean things. And in fact, for the Jewish faith, that's largely what they understood looking through the law was this constant concern God had with ways that they could like bring in bleach cleaners to wipe up all the, 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 the turkey juice and the chicken juice off the counter and to sanitize everything. And they could sanitize it for a little while, but what would happen once it was sanitized for a little while is someone else would wash a chicken in the sink and it'd make it dirty again and it'd make it unclean again. And then this weird thing happened. It happens in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6, I didn't mark this, so we're going to see. Isaiah 6. 
Isaiah 6, this weird thing happens. Um, there's this vision, this vision that Isaiah has. You've probably heard of it. Um, this is awesome, incredible vision. And uh, it paints this picture. Isaiah has, he's, he's in the throne room of God, right? And this really peculiar um, creature called a seraphim or seraphim comes. He's, it, it's, it's, if you think about it, all the collections of teaching that we've seen on seraphim throughout the Old Testament, it's a creepy looking creature. It's a weird looking thing. But it says that there are all these, these, um, these creatures and they were crying out, holy, 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 utterly unique, totally different as the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he's in the temple. And it says, um, the train of his, of his robe filled the temple with glory, right? So there's like this image of like, I is in the temple, but like all he sees is like God's feet, right? And like the bottom of his throne and even just the bottom of his throne fills the whole temple with glory. And there's this rejoicing and celebrating of these heavenly beings. And he panics, and he panics and he says this, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. You see that, right? Unclean, morally messed up, ceremonially unclean. And I live among a messed up people. Anybody else? I'm a messed up person and I live among messed up people. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. But this weird thing happens. It says this, look at verse six, if you're, if you're there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar with tongues. Tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Okay, now pause. What Deuteronomy 19 say? If an unclean thing touches a clean thing, what, is, what happens to the clean thing? It becomes unclean. This is the world they lived in. This is the world many of us lived in. That if we touch an unclean thing, we ourselves become unclean. That we have to find ways morally to build fences, to abstain, to keep ourselves as far away from all those sinny people over there. Because if those sinny people sneeze on us with their sinnies, then I might get what they have. Look at what it says. Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. It's a really interesting thing. Um, Jewish faith has been around for thousands of years and a lot of people have written a lot of things. And it's interesting to read the writings that they would write about this because um, even some of the smartest theologians of the Jewish faith were confused by this. Like, how is this possible? In the face of uncleanliness, you know what God does? He kills. He destroys. He crushes. That, that, that us, as mortal beings, that if we touch something unclean, we can become unclean. You've heard it if you've been around church long enough. What, what happens if the high priest goes into the holy place, and then from the holy place, he goes into the most holy place, and he is himself unclean? What does God do to that person? He strikes him dead. In fact, the legend tells us, a legend because we don't actually have like pictures of it, because um, it was a long time ago. Stories tell us, 
that they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if he died, they could just drag him out. Right? Because if God strikes him dead, who's next? Right? Who's drawn the short straw to go recover his dead body? Which is ironically interesting to think that um, you become unclean by touching a dead body. So if they went in to get the guy, they would become unclean as soon as they touched him, and then God would strike him dead. And it'd just become this like domino until there were enough of them all laid out towards the door that then you could start fetching them. Right? Things I think about as I lay in bed at night. But in the presence of the holiness of God, what they've seen over and over and over again is that in the presence of God's holiness, in the presence of the unclean, God destroys and crushes. And when that thing that is unclean is us, this is what Isaiah is terrified about. But this profoundly unique, weird, shocking, unexplainable thing, just, just, just for a moment, Try and go there with them. Because for them, up until this point, until the story of Isaiah, every single time something was unclean and it touched something clean, it made it, it made that clean thing unclean or it made the unclean thing dead. You remember there's a story about they're carrying um, the Ark of the Covenant? And the Ark of the Covenant begins to tip and it's going to fall over, which in my mind, would seem like a bad thing, right? Ark of the Covenant goes tumbling, falls, smashes open. I think God would be unhappy about that. And a man reaches up and he puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant. The holiness of God, and what does it do to him? Kills him. In an instant, this is the world that they understood. And for many of us, this is the world that, that we understand. That we could... We can never be honest with God. We can never be honest with one another because what would happen? What would happen if other people or if God actually knew all the brokenness and all the sinfulness and all the uncleanliness in me? What if God knew about all the addiction and all the brokenness and all the regret and all the shame, and I actually tried coming to him as a child as he calls me to, would he, just like he struck dead this guy, would he crush me? And this is what Isaiah is terrified about, and the Jewish writers are just confused. <laughs> there were some brilliant Jewish writers, and they just, they just look at this and they go, it, it doesn't, we don't have a paradigm to make sense of what's going on here. But then... Then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and, and you can look at a story like um, in Matthew 8. Matthew 8, <clears throat> it says this. When Jesus came down from the mount, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, here's, here's what you, you got to know about leprosy if you don't. Um, leprosy is a highly contagious skin disease. 
So not only are there massive moral implications about this man's uncleanliness because he's unclean, because he's diseased, and then they'd have the question like is asked elsewhere of Jesus, you know, was it his sin that made him unclean or was it his parents' sin, which actually could be an allusion to like generations back, not just his like mommy and daddy, but like 17 generations back, did somebody like not pay their tithe and so now he's got leprosy, right? But he has this incredibly contagious skin disease that makes him not only physically unclean, but religiously unclean. There is no one in the world that would have looked at this man and said, he is holy, just as the Lord in heaven is holy. They would have looked at him and said, he is unclean, he is an abomination, he is wretched and dirty and consumed by death and decay, and you can see it in the decaying of his fingers and his hands and his flesh as it falls off of him. Look really specifically, before, I, before we read verse three, look really specifically at his request. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then look at what Jesus says. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, in the paradigm that we so often live in, in the paradigm that they lived in so much of the Old Testament, what would have happened in that moment? The unclean would have made the clean unclean. The, 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 the moral reprobate, as they would have seen it, of this man with the disease that his sin was so wretched and so gross that God was putting him on display to proclaim the wretchedness of, of his sinfulness so that everyone else would know. When you mess around, when you mess up, this is what happens. Being consumed by this disease of darkness and death, that if he was to touch another, he would become unclean. And in fact, with a very contagious skin disease, it's what actually should have happened even physically. If we just ignore like the spiritual things going on, with him touching Jesus, Jesus should have gotten this, this thing. But instead, instead of the uncleanliness flowing into the clean one, something different happens. Jesus reaches out and touches and the clean makes the unclean holy. This is, this is the gospel. This is the good news that we celebrate. That we are busted and broken and sinful and rebellious. And as much as we try... Even if we could accomplish every moral feat that God demands of us, then you know what moral error we would have? We'd be prideful. We'd be consummately arrogant and prideful. We'd be as close to Satan in that moment as we could be. But we are wretched and broken and sinful. And Jesus, the clean and holy one, touches the one consumed with disease and by the power and the holiness and the goodness and the righteousness and the might and the utter uniqueness of Jesus, he makes him holy. Peter, you remember our beginning passage? First Peter. 
says this, it continues on, it says this in verse 17. If you address father, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during your time, during the time of your stay on earth. I, I like the way he, he classifies it, right? He's basically saying if you're a follower of Jesus, right? If you call the, the one in heaven father, but look at this. Knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not bought back, you were not paid for, you were not ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of living inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So what does it look like? To be holy. It looks like being one who has been washed by the blood, the spotless, pure, perfect, holy, righteous blood of the Lamb who covers and consumes you. If you call him Father, he has made you holy and righteous. So, so here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing, okay? Here's what, here's what I want you to know today. In every single one of us, there are broken, decaying, dead places in our soul. In every single one of us, even Paul, right? He talks about there's things I wanna do and I, I don't do and there's things I don't wanna do and I do those things and, and what a wretched man I am that I find this in myself. And there are things in your life that you regret and there are places in your life where there is constantly a voice speaking, there's constantly an enemy who's trying to elicit shame and guilt, and, 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 and regret inside of you. And there's a temptation in us, in every single one of us. If you've been following Jesus for three months, you've never followed Jesus, or you've been following him for 45 years, there's a temptation in every single one of us to think that what following Jesus is about is about making ourselves clean. But if there's anything we can learn from the story of Jesus... It is only his touch that cleans us. It is only his holiness that makes us holy. If we call him Father who is in heaven, it is by his son's blood that we are made righteous. And so today, church, I just hope, I plead, I pray, I beg that you would be honest enough with God knowing that he is the only one who can heal and redeem the places that are broken in you. He is the only one who can, who can touch and, and give sight. He is the only one who can touch and heal the, the, the sins and the brokenness of your life. Lastly, Here's the last thing. There's a really big implication of it. It happens in John. Um, John, he's speaking to the woman at the well. And he, and he says this. Now, now on the last day, um, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Oh, oh, sorry. Here we go. John 7. John 7. 
And he says this, Jesus cried out, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. He who believes in me, as the scriptures say, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So let me ask you some really complicated Bible trivia. Who is, who claims to be living water? Jesus, if, if you don't know in your church, the right answer is Jesus or the Bible. Just say Jesus, if they look disappointed, say the Bible, and then you're right 98% of the time. <laughs> From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. From his innermost being will flow Jesus. Jesus. From inside of us. It says, verse 39, but he spoke of the Spirit, right? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is in you if you're a follower of Jesus. And by the blood of the Lamb, you've been made clean, spotless, unblemished because of God's goodness poured over you. If he brings death into, if he brings life into the dead things in you, if he brings light in the dark places of your soul, it says this, that from your innermost being will flow the rivers of living Water, think, think about this, okay, think about this implication, okay? We live in a world, many of us have understood religion in a way that tells us that we live in a world that is constantly being corrupted and decaying because of the expanse of death and destruction and darkness in this world. And then you know what Jesus says? He says there's gonna be a day there's gonna be a day where I'm going to put my spirit in you and out of you is gonna come living water. And out of you is gonna come my spirit. And this spirit, the spirit that has the ability to heal and to cleanse and to bring hope and to bring light into the darkness and bring life into dead things, that that's gonna spew out of you. It's like Jesus is saying there's gonna come a day where I'm gonna put millions of little fountains of holiness exploding out into creation. I'm going to put all these little springs all over the world, and some of those springs are all going to gather together sometimes, and, and those springs are all going to get together, and, and that little like trickle of a spring of my spirit coming out is going to be like a fountain exploding out, healing and bringing hope and bringing life, praying the prayer over and over and over again, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, church, this is our calling. We are not defeated. Jesus is restoring and redeeming everything that is broken. He is healing what is dying. He is bringing life to what is dead. He's bringing light to what is dark, and he's doing it because he's placed you in the job he's placed you, that in that little cubicle, there might be a little spring of life and holiness spewing out into that office. He's doing it because he put you in that home, in that family, so that in that little spot, there might be just this little, and some days it's just a, some days it's just a dribble. Can we be honest? <laughs> some days the only amount of Jesus I can get out of me is just like a little couple dribbles of a leaky faucet. But he's placed you in the neighborhood, in the job, in the family, with the people, so that we, as a people, might be a conduit of his living water that brings healing and hope and grace and mercy and life and holiness and goodness to what is broken and dead. May we, 
may we be those living springs of life in an arid and dark and broken world.